Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Willy Willy Harry Stee. Yes, if you've been following this series about the English monarchy and keeping up with the rhyme it's based on, you'll know that we've got to King Stephen. Although you might have assumed from listening to the previous episode that it was going to be Queen Matilda, who was meant to take the throne after the death of her father, King Henry I. But if you've not listened to the rest of the series and you're just dipping in and you enjoy this episode... I would recommend that you go back to the beginning and start with episode one, because it is an unfolding story. I mean, you might believe that the story of the British monarchy is a stately, logical progression, with one monarch handing over to the next in a dignified and orderly manner. But this is a long way from the truth. It's actually a story of constant struggle and conflict, a story of chaos and violence. And this episode is a vivid example of that. It's a story about how England was torn apart and descended into total anarchy. But it's a story that is now perhaps largely forgotten. It's certainly not taught in the schools as any part of the history curriculum. I mean, I know that for a lot of people, their knowledge of the British monarchs is a bit sketchy, to say the least. They know a little bit about a king or a queen here and there, the likes of Henry VIII. But they'll not necessarily know how it all fits together. And that's what I'm trying to deal with in this series. And also to throw a spotlight on some of the lesser known monarchs, such as our current subject, King Stephen. We saw in the last episode... King Henry I came to the throne in slightly murky circumstances after the suspicious death of his brother, King William II, William Rufus, and following a lifetime of sibling rivalry between him and William and their older brother, Robert Shortpants. And we saw how small things or 
perhaps I should say more like random things, unexpected things, can suddenly happen and completely derail the train of monarchy and can completely alter the course of history. Henry had spent so long consolidating his power, uh, making England safe and secure, making its finances stable. In fact, it had been a period of stability, which had been enforced with uh, quite an iron fist, but he had settled things down and things were looking good until his son and heir, William Atheling, dies in a shipwreck and everything is thrown up in the air. One of the themes of the series that I'll be asking you to think about is what's it all for? Is it worth it? These people who, who struggle so hard to take the throne of England, what do they get out of it? Why do they do it? What is that drive? Is it that they want to be remembered forever? Is it just that they want ultimate power and wealth? Do they want their name to echo down the ages? In which case, most of them failed on that front. I learnt the rhyme, Willy Willy Harry Stee at school. I don't think it's a rhyme that's learnt these days as a way of remembering the monarchs in order. And many people would say well, it's not important to remember them and who they were and what they did. Uh, I think it is important. Well, it's certainly interesting. But was it worth it for, for Henry to, to, to spend all his life fighting to get into that position, to sort everything out, to make England settled, then to lose his heir, and then to die a fairly ignoble death from eating too many parasitic eels? It's not a great end. And for many people, that's all they know about Henry, that he died from eating a surfeit of lampreys. But he had insisted that his surviving legitimate heir, Matilda, would be the next to sit on the English throne. He got his lords to swear an oath of loyalty to him and swear to support Matilda. Four years later, he got them to do it again. On his deathbed, he got as many of those uh, lords as were available to come to his bedside to swear again that yes, they would be happy for Matilda to take the throne. He must have known that it was something of a long shot and he had held things together by being tough. There had been lots of different factions vying for power, lots of different um, power bases. There were the English themselves, the Anglo-Saxons. There were the various Anglo-Norman dukes and lords split between those who had holdings in England and those who had holdings in Normandy. There was still some support for the Danes, particularly in northern England. And the death of, of Henry can be seen as similar to what happened in Iraq after the death of Saddam Hussein, who had held this country together and prevented these different factions from fighting each other and from vying for power. And as soon as Saddam is taken out of the equation, it all falls apart and Iraq falls into, into chaos. And that is what happens in England. It doesn't help Matilda's cause that the time of her father Henry's death, she was essentially at war with him. We saw in the last episode how Matilda, when she was quite young, was married to the elderly Henry V of Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor of Europe, uh, and became 
an empress herself. And whilst her husband was away campaigning and on political matters abroad, she essentially ran his country for him. She knew a lot about what it meant to be in power, how politics worked, how the royal court worked. After Henry dies, King Henry I of England, sorry, this is very confusing with the names and there's a lot of confusion in this episode. There are a lot of Henrys and there are a lot of Matildas, but I'll try to keep them distinct and separate. Uh, So Henry I, our Matilda's father, puts her into a second political marriage with Geoffrey of Anjou, Anjou being one of the uh, other regions of France around Normandy to the south. This was a good alliance for Henry because it meant that his southern borders were protected. At the time, Geoffrey of Anjou was only 14 and Matilda was uh, 25. She was 11 years older than him. So she very much was the powerful body in this relationship. So Henry must have thought, okay, Matilda is going to go along with what I say. Geoffrey is young. He hasn't got a lot of power yet. And the idea was that then when Henry eventually died, Matilda and Geoffrey would take over the running of the empire. But before he died, Matilda and Geoffrey went to him and said, uh, look, give us your powerful castles. Normandy will look after Normandy for you and you can concentrate on these other matters. At which Henry thought, oh my God, have I done the wrong thing? Having married her to to, to Geoffrey of Anjou and Angevin, he suddenly becomes paranoid that the Angevins are going to try and take over. So he refuses their request, at which point there is a, as a rebellion of some Norman dukes sensing a weakness here. And Geoffrey and Matilda side with the rebels against Matilda's own father. So everything that he feared starts to come true. He dies not long afterwards. Matilda is not there at his bedside. She is in dispute with him, which does not go well for her. And a lot of these Norman dukes sense an opportunity here that the English throne is up for grabs again. And various people consider taking action. But the man who does take action is Stephen of Blois. Stephen is the grandson of William the Conqueror via William's daughter Adela. So he's Matilda's cousin. Stephen's father was the Count of Blois, which is a county in central France. It's one of these uh, squabbling duchies that France is full of. Uh, He died while Stephen was still young, and the boy was brought up at the court of his uncle, King Henry I, in England. So he does have something of a claim to the throne. And what's more, he's very popular. He seems to have been an affable and clubbable chap. He was as happy sitting, chatting and eating with his servants as he was with the lords and the ladies. He was very good at backslapping and glad-handing, so he had the support of the nobility, or at least a large part of it. He was also wealthy, which helped. He had land in England and in France, especially after he married Matilda, another Matilda, sorry, Countess of Boulogne. And crucially, his brother Henry... Ah, uh, yeah, sorry, it's another Henry. Uh, uh, so, uh, well, I'll call him Henri. Henri was a powerful figure in the English church. 
Um, he is Bishop of Winchester. So Stephen decides to take his chance and rushes over to England where he starts his campaign to become king. Stephen would have learnt a lot at his Uncle Henry's court growing up. He would have learnt a lot about politics and intrigue and power. He would also have been very familiar with the story of how, after William Rufus's suspicious death in the hunting accident, Prince Henry's first action was to rush to Winchester and secure the treasury. Because if you take control of the money, you have all the power. This is what Stephen did. He went to Winchester, took hold of the treasury, and with the help of his brother Henri, Bishop Henri, he gets himself crowned in Westminster Abbey in London just in time for Christmas. It seemed to be accepted at the time that you couldn't get yourself crowned King of England unless the people of London agreed to it. This was unofficial, but if without the support of Londoners, you couldn't get yourself crowned. But Stephen was popular enough and everybody must have thought, OK, this might lead to a return to stability. Uh, he gets himself crowned and everybody seems to go along with it, except for one person, his cousin Matilda, the Empress Matilda, King Henry I's daughter, the person that he said should rule when he dies. She is not happy. Her husband Geoffrey is not happy. And her half-brother, Robert, who is one of King Henry's many, many illegitimate children, he's a powerful Anglo-Norman lord, Robert of Gloucester, Robert Fitzroy. As I say, he was Matilda's half-brother, a powerful man with strong English ties. He sides with his sister, and shortly after Stephen takes the throne, he leads a rebellion against him. Matilda at this time stays in Normandy. Matilda would not really have been well known in England at all. She's lived abroad for most of her life, uh, but she was very young when she married the Emperor Henry and lived in Germany. And then when she married uh, Geoffrey of Anjou, she lived there. At this stage, she's still very young and she's achieved a huge amount in her early 20s. When you compare her to the likes of, uh, and I don't mean to be snobbish, but I'm going to be, you compare her to the likes of contestants on Love Island, she's a certainly a more formidable figure, concerned with more than just trying to attract the attention of some empty-headed twit with a six-pack and shaved balls. She's been ruling great swathes of Europe. She's been in position of power. She is a strong, ambitious young woman. Geoffrey and Matilda are in control of Normandy, which is their power base. Geoffrey is growing up, but they're not quite powerful enough yet and not quite secure enough yet in Normandy to go over to England themselves and lead the opposition to Stephen. So Matilda's half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, kicks it all off. Stephen's been having to deal with uprisings in Scotland and Wales, and now he has an uprising in England to contend with. The rebellion goes quite well to start with. Robert has a certain amount of support. And four years after Stephen took the throne in 1139, Matilda 
finally feels confident enough to cross the channel with a small company of knights intending to join up with Robert of Gloucester and support the rebellion as the figurehead and, as she sees it, the rightful ruler of the country. She's not made terribly welcome and ends up being captured and imprisoned in Arundel Castle, which could have been the end of it. But Stephen does something quite extraordinary that people are still debating why he did it to this day. He essentially let Matilda go. Now, why did he do that? Was there a feeling of chivalry? Was there a feeling that she wasn't that important, that Robert was his main threat? Was it that she was his cousin and he didn't want to harm her? Because this period has been, a lot of people talk about it along the lines of Stephen was too nice and Matilda wasn't nice enough. Was he just too soft-hearted, too kind-hearted? But whatever the reason, he lets her go and allows her to travel safely to the southwest, where she's joined by Robert of Gloucester and the two of them make their power base there. And this, unfortunately, leads to a period of 20 years of war. Now, when we look at English history, we talk about the Civil War, the one between the Royalist Cavaliers and the Parliamentarian Roundheads, between Charles I and Oliver Cromwell. But actually, English history has been riven with many, many civil wars. The Anglo-Saxons were constantly at each other's throats. And after the Norman invasion, in many ways, the struggles between the three brothers, Robert, William, Rufus and Henry, can be seen as a form of civil war. This period of conflict between Stephen and Matilda was definitely a civil war and was in many ways the most devastating as it went on for so long. Then later on there were the Wars of the Roses. I mean, th th that period has been given that romantic title, but it was basically just another civil war, English men fighting other English men. And there were many others. But as I say, this war between Matilda and Stephen was possibly the worst. One of the reasons it went on for so long was because the two sides were fairly evenly matched. But also, whilst both of them had a claim to the throne, neither of them could command the full support of the nation, neither the lords nor the ordinary people. Now, the Victorians named this period the Anarchy, which is very apt. It was a miserable time for the English people. And a civil war is perhaps the nastiest of all types of war. It was a period in which different lords, dukes and powerful people could settle old scores, fight their neighbours, pick sides. Would they support Matilda's cause or would they support Stephen's cause? And they would often switch sides if they felt that they were going to get more out of it, if they could suddenly sack their uh, neighbour and ally while they were off fighting, steal everything they had. And of course, caught up in all this, in a civil war being being fought all over the land, the ordinary people whose crops would be burnt, their villages would be destroyed, they themselves would be slaughtered. It was a terrible, terrible period. It was quite well summed up by a famous passage in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that talks about this, that talks about powerful people capturing their rivals and torturing them. And it talks about the devastation to the land I've slightly edited it and um, updated some of the language so it's easier to follow. But here we go. 
Every rich man built his castles. They cruelly oppressed the wretched men of the land with castle works, and when the castles were made, they filled them with devils and evil men. Then took those whom they supposed to have any goods, labouring men and women, and threw them into prison for their gold and silver, and inflicted on them unutterable tortures. For never were any martyrs so tortured as they were. Some were hanged up by the feet and smoked with foul smoke, and some by the thumbs or by the head, and hung coats of mail on their feet. They tied knotted strings about their heads and twisted them till the pain went to the brains. They put them into dungeons wherein were adders and snakes and toads, and so destroyed them. I neither can nor may I tell all the wounds and all the pains which they inflicted on wretched men in this land. This lasted the nineteen winters while Stephen was king, and it grew continually worse and worse. They plundered and burned all the towns, that you might go a whole day's journey and never find a man sitting in a town, nor the land tilled. Then was corn dear, and meat and cheese and butter, for none was there in the land. Wretched men starved of hunger. They spared neither church nor churchyard, but took all the goods that were therein, and then burned the church and all together. Every man robbed another who could. To till the ground was to plough the sea. The earth bore no corn, for the land was all laid waste by such deeds. And they said openly that Christ slept and his saints. So that was one of the more vivid passages from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But the war drags on and each side takes it in turns to have the upper hand because the problem is that uh, you could retreat into your castle and castles are very difficult to attack at this stage they didn't have the cannons that would later on cause castles to become obsolete so it meant a permanent grinding war of attrition occasionally people would make the mistake of trying to sally forth out of a out of a castle and, and win a battle which is exactly what happened a couple of years after matilda was freed when Stephen comes charging out of Lincoln Castle to try and defeat Robert's army. It doesn't go his way and Stephen is captured. So Stephen is then incarcerated in Bristol Castle. Uh, his wife, confusingly also called Matilda, now leads his forces. And she, in a later battle, manages to defeat and capture Robert of Gloucester. Uh, at which point there's an exchange of prisoners. Stephen is let go and Robert is released. It's quite confused and confusing uh, what went on in this 20 years civil war. As I say, each side took it in turns to, to be in power. Um, it doesn't help that everybody had the same name. Like when Stephen was imprisoned in Bristol and his wife, Queen Matilda, Matilda of Boulogne, was ruling his part of the country in his name and leading his army against our Empress Matilda. And Empress Matilda was very nearly captured in 1142 
in Oxford, where she had set up her camp. Uh, Stephen made a surprise attack from the west. He managed to surround her in the castle. Um, and the story goes, I'll tell the story, it's probably not true, but it's a nice story, that she managed to escape just before Christmas with her household. They all dressed in white and they escaped across the frozen river and into the snowy countryside, which has become one of those sort of great romantic myths, legends from, from English history. So Matilda and her half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, were in charge of the armies and fighting in England, whilst her husband, Geoffrey Plantagenet, was stationed in Normandy, trying to secure the duchy against the constantly aggressive neighbours. Now, I'll just backtrack a bit here. Matilda and Geoffrey had had a son. He was two years old when Henry I died. And just to annoy you even further, he was also called Henry. Now, he grew up in Normandy. And uh, when he was old enough, he joined the fight himself. Well, actually, he wasn't quite old enough. He first made an attempt at invading England and... Um, helping his mother uh, in 1147, when he was only 14 years old. He led this war party, consisting mainly of mercenaries, but also members of his immediate household. And it was a pretty much an abject failure. It all went horribly wrong. He didn't have enough backing and uh, money to pay the mercenaries. His mother didn't want to support him because she said she hadn't asked him to come. And in the end, Unbelievably, it was Stephen who paid Henry's debts. He paid his men off so that Henry could uh, leave England and take them away. Again, it's very much like when Stephen earlier on let Matilda go when he had first captured her. Was this because he had too soft a heart? Was he just thinking this was the easiest way to get rid of Henry? Who knows? But it certainly fits the story that he was too soft and Matilda was too hard in that she didn't pay Henry's men and he did. But Henry went back, uh, but returned a few years later when he was older and was able to raise a proper army. In the meantime, Matilda tries to get herself crowned Queen of England, but doesn't have enough support, particularly in London. The Londoners don't like her. They're still backing Stephen, she becomes the lady of the English, but never becomes the actual queen of the English. It's interesting when you look at Matilda's character, she was this very rich and powerful woman, 11 years older than her husband. And she is often talked about, and, and even today, some historians talk about her, the way they talk about many powerful women, whether it's in politics or business or show business even. They talk about them being too hard, too unbending, too unwilling to make compromises, abrasive. People find it hard to get on with them. All these characteristics which are, which are uh, celebrated in a man are in a woman seen as unwomanly. And so it's hard for these powerful women to get respect and support and love. And it's quite clear that there was no great love for Matilda in England. So, as I say, this war drags on. 
once Stephen is freed, he's able to keep rallying his forces. One of the things that, that has undermined him is, and this is something that crops up again and again, and will really crop up in a big way with the next episode when we look at Thomas Beckett, was that Stephen had his fallings out with the church. The church is extremely powerful and extremely wealthy, and they have their own system of government, if you like, and their higher authority is not the king. It is, first of all, the pope, and then beyond the pope, it is God. And so the king has to do this careful dance around the clergy of trying to keep them on side, but not giving them so much power that he loses power of his own. Quite early in his reign, he deposes and arrests a number of bishops who he considers are getting too big for their boots, too powerful, and building these big castles everywhere. So he gets rid of them. So the church turn against him. He has the support of his brother Henri, who he makes, first of all, abbot of Glastonbury, which is a very wealthy abbey, and then creates this Bishop of Winchester, which is almost like a third archbishop. We have our main chief archbishop, the head of the English church, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury. We then have the Archbishop of York, which is the Archbishop of the Northern half of the country. And Stephen has created this new ecclesiastical power base in the West Country, in Winchester. So that's Henry, Henri. We've got Stephen and his wife, Matilda. Then we've got the Empress, Matilda. And yeah, I mean, these names are really confusing, which I think is what makes British history quite confusing for a lot of people. There have only been four monarchs who aren't numbered. They're the only English monarchs with that name to take the throne? It's a good pub quiz question. I'll give you the answer now. I don't want you thinking about it and not paying attention to the next fascinating piece of history. They are Stephen, John, Anne and Victoria. So Stephen should be easy to remember. He was the only Stephen. I think you'd be hard pressed though to find that many ordinary members of the British public who could tell you very much about Stephen, or in fact anything at all about him. Do they know about this terrible civil war that tore England apart and sent it into ruin? But it goes on for about 20 years. By the end of this, everyone is sick of it. Everyone is sick of fighting. They're sick of the, the bloodshed, of losing so many people. Stephen has been trying to ensure that his son Eustace will take the throne after his death. He even tries to get him crowned king before Stephen himself is dead, but the strict Norman rules don't allow this. He appeals to the Pope to let, let this happen. The Pope doesn't want to let it happen. Stephen still tries to push for it. He falls out with his clergy, including his own brother Henri, who at one point actually goes over to the other side. Um, but he is still hoping somehow that Eustace can take the throne. Meanwhile, Matilda and Geoffrey's son has grown up. He was only two when Stephen took to the throne. Now he's 20. His father, Geoffrey, dies young, a long time before his much older wife. Henry is now the ruler of Anjou and Normandy. His family, yes, we call them Angevins or Angevin from Anjou, but his grandfather was famous for wearing a sprig of flowering broom in his hat and it becomes a symbol of the family. Broom is this sort of tough leathery plant that has these bright yellow flowers. 
In Latin, it's genesta. In French, it's genet or genet. And the family become known as the Plantagenets, after the planter genet, the, the broom plant, which becomes their family symbol. So Henry, taking after his father's side rather than his mother's side, is Henry Plantagenet. He is now 20. He's a tough, good soldier. He seems to command respect, and there's a lot of coming and going, but essentially Henry eventually comes over to England with an army, joins up with Matilda. Uh, by this point, Robert of Gloucester has died. Uh, Stephen is perhaps thinking the threat is going to diminish, but with the arrival of Henry, things change. And there's some skirmishes, but eventually the two factions line up against each other across the River Thames at Wallingford. And there is a prospect of a sort of final apocalyptic battle. But nobody really has the stomach for it. This has gone on for too long. Even if one side does win this battle, it will be at huge cost. And it won't necessarily settle things. So Bishop Henri negotiates, just as he has done before. It was him who was involved in the negotiation to swap the prisoners, Robert of Gloucester and Stephen himself. Again, he gets involved and a peace treaty is finally agreed on. And the agreement is that Stephen will stay on the throne until his death, at which point it will be handed over to Henry Plantagenet, to Matilda's son. So she will never take the throne. She never did, but she did live to see her son Henry take the throne. Why did both sides agree to this? Well, Stephen had given up on his campaign to get his son Eustace put on the throne because Eustace had recently died. Stephen didn't want the war to carry on. As I said before, he was a fundamentally decent bloke. He was given the opportunity to sit on the throne and he may have thought, OK, I'll stay on the throne. I'm still well liked. I'll slowly gather political support for my cause. And when the time is right, I'll turn on Henry. And Henry probably thought exactly the same thing. He was not known in England. He was very much a Frenchman, uh, part of the not well-liked Angevin dynasty. He didn't have huge support in England. He had brought a French army with him. Matilda must have thought the same. And again, they probably thought, OK, we'll sit this out. We'll take power in the West and we will garner support. There is evidence that one of Stephen's other sons was planning to secretly murder Henry Plantagenet. But it didn't come to anything because within a year, Stephen had died, which was very handy for Henry and Matilda. Who knows, perhaps there was some skullduggery going on behind the scenes. Perhaps he was poisoned. There didn't seem to be any suspicion about this at the time, but then as Henry was able to take the throne, he could have quashed rumours that were going round. Officially, Stephen died of a stomach illness, another exploding stomach, if you like. And it's interesting because Stephen, if you remember from the last episode where we talked about the disaster of the white ship, Stephen had not been on the white ship with the doomed William Atheling. He had gone on ahead and travelled with 
King Henry, uh, and one of the reasons given in history is that Stephen had diarrhoea. So whilst his life at the time was saved by having an exploding stomach, it got him in the end. He dies in 1154. He's in his early 60s. He had sat on the throne, albeit rather uncomfortably, for 19 years, and he dies of a mundane stomach complaint. So let's go to our guest on this episode, and I'm delighted to welcome Catherine Hanley, who is a historian, but has also written historical fiction. And one of her history books is Matilda, a biography of Matilda. It's called Matilda, Empress, Queen, Warrior. Catherine, welcome. Hello. You are the perfect guest to talk about Stephen and Matilda. Oh, thank you. And, it, and it's wonderful to have you on. So do you think it's fair to say that Stephen is one of our sort of forgotten kings, that he's not one of the ones that if you ask the average person in the street, tell me three facts about King Stephen, that they're really going to be able to tell you anything much at all? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think some people are quite surprised to find that England ever did have a king who was called Stephen, because um, <laughs> he's 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 been forgotten. Um, I might put my cards on the table here and and say, rightly so, in my opinion, because <laughs> um, he was he was a bit of a non-entity and he shouldn't really have ever been on the throne in the first place. Um, but I mean, that's what makes this such an interesting period. It's kind of it's so soon after. William the Conqueror and the, and the bits that everybody knows about and then and then suddenly you you get this bit in between William the Conqueror and the later Plantagenets when everyone's going who what um so it's a wonderful period to write about just to clarify some of that and actually you know it is a period where there was a lot of history there was a yes, lot going on there was on. a lot and, going on <laughs> and this and the central story of his conflict with Matilda is very dramatic isn't it it is. It is. And it, it also, interestingly, although it's, you know, this happened 800 and something years ago, it's it's very resonant for the, for the modern age because there is sort of a tale of the different expectations laid on men and women and, the, you know, the gender wars and what people thought was were suitable roles for, for men and women. And it's, you know, we haven't, we haven't really got to the end of that yet. So it's interesting to, to see where the roots of all that. Yeah, I said in my talk that... Matilda is very much treated, even by some modern historians, there's this idea of she was a bit pushy and nobody likes a pushy woman kind of thing. So like that sort of way that powerful female executives are always characterised mm -hmm. and are always criticised mm -hmm. for being, oh, they're a bit too male kind of thing. Men are allowed to behave like that, but not women. Yeah. To get sort of right to the, the, the meat of this straight away, there is no question that Matilda was usurped purely and simply because she was female, right? She was the only surviving legitimate child of the previous king. She had been designated by him as his heir. You know, that, that should have been it. And although there'd been various attempts over the years to sort of dress it up, as you say, that, you know, she was haughty or she was arrogant or whatever, it's just nonsense. You know, if Henry I had left his throne to an intelligent, well-educated, politically experienced adult son, do you think any of this would have happened? No, absolutely not. Which, 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 you know, it does beg the question, did Henry seriously believe that she would be allowed to rule? I mean, he must have known there would, there would have been that opposition to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think he was just, he was so used to having his every order obeyed mm. that it might not have occurred to him that once he was dead, people might go against his <laughs> wishes. And, you know, he he saw, I think, something of himself in Matilda. You know, he was very keen that the, the throne should go to a child of his own. And, of course, his first choice had had been his son who 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 died in the white ship disaster um but matilda he certainly saw as better suited for the job uh, than you know than than any of the other candidates but it was you know it was because matilda was was a woman that people started to say oh well actually do we really want this you know and 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 that was what gave stephen you know his opportunity he saw a chance and he took it and he is kind of, again, to put it in sort of slightly modern terms, he's the epitome of the mediocre male who gets promoted <laughs> over the head of the better qualified woman because his face fits and he's in the right boys club. And of course, once the crown was on his head, he was the king. You know, it's coronation is the all important signifier of, of kingship at this yeah. stage. So even if you're the designated heir, you don't become the king unless you're crowned. But if you are crowned, you are the king, regardless of who you were before. <laughs> so that's why Stephen and not Matilda is the one who appears on those lists, you know, on tea towels and rulers. And, and yes, I mean, so, I mean, so so what was the closest she got to, to being in power? At one point, she was victorious, yes, in the year 1141. Um, there was quite a big battle at Lincoln. Uh, during which Stephen was taken prisoner and he was actually put in um, Matilda's custody. She had him put in prison. Um, Stephen's all-important brother, the very influential Bishop of Winchester, who was also a papal legate, swapped sides at this point um, and went over to Matilda and she was declared Lady of the English. Right Now, that's an interesting title. It's not, it's not Queen, because you're not queen until you're crowned. But lady of does imply kind of ruling authority. But she must so, have been planning to get to Yeah, get she crowned. was planning to be crowned. And she actually went to Westminster and the, the coronation was all planned. Um, but it was at this point that two things happened. Firstly, she she got hijacked by a very hostile press right mm. all of these contemporaries started criticizing her and again this is kind of very gendered yes right the best way to be a medieval king or ruling monarch is to be authoritarian okay being a jolly nice chap just doesn't cut it henry yes. the first was a very effective king because everyone was terrified of him so matilda has had this example of her father and indeed her first husband the emperor Henry. Everyone in this story is called Henry or Matilda, know, it's, by it's, the way. It's, it's a um, nightmare. And um, <laughs> so she, on being declared the monarch, you know, began to act like one. Um, and contemporaries were absolutely horrified. And we get these ludicrous things in Chronicles where they start criticising her for walking and talking confidently and arranging <laughs> matters, <laughs> arranging matters as she saw fit herself instead of relying on her you know her her male advisors and 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 not exhibiting and i'm quoting here the modest gait and bearing proper to the gentle sex right and this is ludicrous you know if you aimed this at 
a man who had just been declared king and was about to get crowned. It, it would be ridiculous. So this is where we start to get this idea that, you know, she was haughty and arrogant and she had her chance and she blew it. What's yeah, totally. really, really interesting is that the person who came to Stephen's rescue at this point was his wife, who is also called Matilda. Yes, and, so we have a, a war between two Matildas. And Queen Matilda, because her husband is in prison, she takes over. She rides at the head of his troops with his commanders and they attacked London and Westminster as Empress Matilda was there ready to be crowned. And it was actually on the very eve of her coronation that Empress Matilda was chased out of Westminster by an army led by Queen Matilda. But was Queen Matilda also criticised then for being, no, oh, she's a bit too exactly warlike? No, that's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> the point. She was praised to the heavens. And the reason is that although she was a woman, she was acting on behalf of her husband right. and therefore still was subject to male authority, whereas Empress Matilda was seeking to rule in her own right. And this is different. And so the same chronicler who's just criticised the Empress for not being you know, sufficiently modest and all the rest of it, literally on the same page, um, praises... Queen Matilda, Stephen's wife, for bearing herself with the valour of a man. Oh Lord! And and you know if that if that doesn't tell you that something about <laughs> what's going on, you know I don't know what does. And so was 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 our Matilda, Empress Matilda, was she leading the army in these in these wars? Her army. She was leading it in terms of being a general and strategizing and and being in charge of that sort of thing she did not actually lead her army in the field right. so the battle the, her commander at the the battle of lincoln was her half brother he was called robert thank yep. goodness um <laughs> and he was he was the earl of gloucester and he he was her half brother because he was an illegitimate son of henry the first so therefore could have no claim to the throne himself and supported his sister so he was like her lieutenant really leading her armies in the field while she was in charge of the overall strategy mm. you could just imagine what the chroniclers would have said if she'd actually you know put on armor and got on a horse with a sword in her hand <laughs> it's an interesting thing about robert because king henry as we've seen his legitimate son dies in the white ship he has a whole host of illegitimate sons including robert who seemed to be very capable a very good warrior and leader of men if henry was thinking right whatever i say goes so therefore i can get matilda accepted could he not have said i'll get robert to be my heir he could have tried that there are kind of two things against that the first is that he would have found himself in big trouble with the church that's mm. not a can of worms i want to open just right now but william the conqueror had been illegitimate but in the in the hundred and something years since william the conqueror had been on the throne the church had really tightened up its rules on the sanctity of marriage and the importance of children being legitimate and if mm. henry had tried to name an illegitimate son as his heir he would have been in trouble with everyone from you know the archbishop of canterbury to the pope so it would have been quite difficult and secondly and and this is another point that I find very interesting in that 
as Matilda's skills have always been done down, Robert's have always been bigged up. Right. He's actually not. If you look really closely, he's actually not as good as he was. As he's always been cracked up uh, to be. He's a very so, capable soldier and a very loyal lieutenant. But he's, he's getting not a very good leader. He's getting credit for what Matilda was doing. Though. Yeah. Exactly. I've even seen in a slightly older and early 20th century history book that Matilda's campaign is called Robert's Party and that Robert was trying to put his sister on. I'm like, mm, you've got that the wrong way around. You really have. Um, so he was very loyal, very good lieutenant, very good soldier in the field. But as a leader, not very good. He was indecisive. Um, and he was also he he wasn't quite as, as bad as Steam, but he was also a kind of very affable Sort of, you know, hail fellow, well met, um, which just wouldn't wouldn't have cut it. So they had it the right way round. You know, it's if it's kind of a shame, really, that people just couldn't see that they had it the wrong way round. <laughs> and these uh, and this civil war dragged on for years. Yeah. Um, and now you're something of an expert, I believe, on. On medieval warfare. Yeah, my, my PhD was in medieval warfare in the 12th and 13th oh, centuries. Well, excellent. Yeah. Well, so you're the perfect person to ask, how did it, how did they go about it? Because, um, you know, in, in my superficial research that I've been doing this series, there's this idea that they're, they're sort of trying to avoid ever getting into an actual battle. Yeah, pitched battles were generally avoided because they were so risky um, years of careful planning could all be undone on one day by something as simple as bad luck or the mm. weather. I mean, and this is shown that we there is one great pitch battle during this war, which was the Battle of Lincoln, and that was the one at which Stephen was captured and thrown in prison. And it, you know, it, it could have been all over. So, so it's just it's just like playing Risk, where you've spent many moves building up your huge army. And then you have a couple of crap dice throws <laughs> yeah, and you're absolutely yeah. massacred. I mean, it, it literally could be that it had been raining too hard and therefore you found it more difficult to cross the river than you thought you would yeah. have done. And and that's it. You know, it, it's all over. So the war was in general um, categorised by a very, it was very attritional. There were an awful lot of sieges, right? Castles are very important. There's yeah. a reason why castles are important on a chessboard. Um, if you own or have control of a castle you can ride out of it during the day you can attack you know a, a radius of sort of 10 15 miles you can burn everything attack everything then you can retreat back behind your walls mm. and your gates and you can be safe so as long as you hold a castle and even if your enemy is sort of coming through the land if they don't take your castle on the way if they leave your castle behind them and, and move past mm. you're going to sally out from your castle and come and attack them from behind so castles were probably the most important thing about this war and we do see there was an enormous proliferation of castle mm. building during this period and interestingly actually also we find um churches being fortified and used as strongholds because of course they're made of stone but castles were taken so how would a siege like that work? What sort of equipment did they have in those days? Well, it's extremely difficult to take a castle by storm. They did have a few stone-throwing machines, but they weren't anything like these great big trebuchets that yeah. you see later. They were much smaller and, and, and not quite as effective. So you were much better trying to take a castle either by 
starvation, you mm. know, cutting off their supplies, their water supplies, or, you know, bribery, trying to bribe the Castellan to say, well, if you come over to my side, you know, I'll make you the Earl of whatever. Um, so, which is why the castles weren't knocked down. Because yeah. obviously, if you take a castle, you don't want to knock it down. <laughs> you want to take the castle so you can garrison it yourself. You don't you don't want it to be a pile of rubble. So actually trying to take it by merely starving the garrison, because you don't care about them, you care about the building, um, or or bribing the castellan or, or taking it by trickery is, is actually much better and less time consuming than trying to knock it down by yeah. throwing stones at it. You mentioned sort of bribery and swapping sides and... There was a huge amount of that going on, of, the, of all these various factions siding first with Stephen and then with Matilda. I mean, is this one of the reasons why the war went on for so long? That is absolutely it. Yeah. So there are among the nobility, there's kind of three distinct groups. There's Matilda's dedicated supporters. They're the people who admire her personally and or were very loyal to Henry I and wanted to carry out his wishes. You've got Stephen's dedicated supporters who are... Some of them are dedicated to Stephen personally, but most of them are on his side simply because they can't stand the concept of a, a ruling queen. They don't like female rule. But then you've got another group of, of nobles who acted purely and simply out of self-interest. Mm. Um, you know, they swapped sides at will depending on who looked like they were going to win at the time. And the problem was that none of these groups was was in any way big enough to overwhelm the mm. others which is why this war just goes on for years and years and years until eventually it's been going on for so long that it's not just about who should be wearing the crown now it's also about well who's going to wear it next i mean we should add that you know the vast majority of the population of the country didn't care they just wanted to live in peace they wanted mm. to live and be able to grow their crops and do their trading without their crops being burnt and their stuff being stolen and their sons being taken away to to be conscripted into armies mm. it's very much a war of the nobility not yeah. the people of england how do you motivate troops like that when they're saying well, well who are we fighting today then <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> and why <laughs> Well, I mean, it did get to the point where everyone was so sick of it. This war ended not with a bang, but with a whimper because it, it got to sort of into the 1150s. Um, and there was just this this standoff. The, the person leading Matilda's army at this stage was her eldest son, Henry. And he had the considerable advantage of um, being male. Yeah. So the, some of the people who were against female rule but weren't all that keen on Stephen, who didn't want Matilda, could actually, as Henry grew up, could start going, oh, hang on, hang on, there might be another option here. Mm. Um, and so Stephen's principal opponent in the later years of the war was not Matilda, but Matilda's eldest son, Henry. And it got to the point in the 1150s when there was just this sort of shocking, there was a standoff across both sides of a river. I think it was at Malmesbury in really shocking weather. All the chroniclers tell us how awful the weather was and they couldn't. And everyone on both sides just refused to fight. Mm. They said, we're just not doing this anymore. So they were forced into negotiations. And so it's kind of a compromise. Matilda might have thought, well, you know, OK, I didn't get the crown, but at least 
it's been pushed back in the proper direction. Yes. And and everyone else was quite happy with this because Eustace was very, very unpopular. He was erratic and violent and he really enjoyed going around burning the crops and <laughs> killing the peasants and attacking the churches. And people were, you know, the nobles were starting to think, actually, you know, we don't really want him on the throne. So suddenly Henry becomes, you know, known as the true and lawful heir of old King Henry I, whose reign is by now being looked back on as halcyon days of peace and prosperity. Yes. And they can say, well, he's Henry I's grandson. It's 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 pushing the crown back into the proper line. Everything's lovely. I mean, it's a bit tough on Matilda, really, because Henry wouldn't have been in that position if Matilda hadn't spent 20 years fighting. Yeah. Um, and again, he gets a lot of the credit that should have been hers, but she was probably much, you know, given the choice of, do you want to sit on the throne and there'll be war forever? Yeah. Well, she, or do I you mean, want she, your son to inherit it? She'd probably take that. Yeah, I mean, she was at least on the winning side. Yeah, she. I always put it, <laughs> she lost the battle, but she won the war. Yes. Because every monarch, every single monarch that you're going to talk about in your series from this point in history onwards is a direct descendant of Matilda. Ah. Trust me, I've been through all the family right. trees. But that must be quite a circuitous route for some of them. Some of them are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes. It's not always by male primogeniture. It hasn't gone yes. father, son, father, son, father, son. But every single person who has sat on the English and later the British throne can, by some route, trace their ancestry ancestry directly back to Matilda. And if that's not winning the war, I don't know what is. <laughs> but I'm in a slightly unusual position of being a female military historian. Mm. Mm. And I think when the story has been told before, it's either been told from a very, very military point of view, you know, about the war, yeah. always by men, and obviously men writing in the sort of late 19th and earlier 20th centuries had had their own ideas of what was mm -hmm. a role for women. Or her story has been looked at very much through the lens of gender by gender historians, most of whom are female, but who aren't necessarily um, military experts. Right. So I, I really wanted to look at Matilda's role as a military leader, which is why the word warrior appears in the, and I can tell you there were some discussions about that, uh, uh, the word warrior appears in the title. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, but I freely admit, you know, I'm putting my own 21st century feminist take on Matilda's story. And in another 50 years, somebody will write something completely different that has a completely different interpretation to me. Anyone who tells you that, you know, the nonfiction history book you pick up is the fact and the yes. truth with a capital T, and this is the only way it could possibly have happened, you know, is is telling you a fib. Well, that's the perfect point to end this episode of Charlie Higson Tells You Fibs About the Past. Huge thanks to my guest, Catherine Hanley, author of Matilda, Empress, Queen, Warrior. I must say, it's great to have proper historians like you, Kath, to guide me through our often tangled history. So thank you very much. Well, thank Kath. you. It's lovely to have the opportunity to tell more people about really interesting stories from the past. Don't miss the next episode when we see what happens when Matilda's son Henry takes the throne and we have murder in the cathedral. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. 
Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.